each, you know, little offensive they mount. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the result of a modern army not being able to, to support itself in the field. It's not good. And they're either going to learn from it or it's really going to start hurting them badly. Not that it hasn't already. It, it, Go ahead. Sorry, language. Yeah. Um, Patrick, and then sorry, I don't know your rank. Otherwise, I would uh, refer to you by your rank, sir. Um, but is it fair to say that this offensive has culminated by now or not? And I'm totally showing my CNN like education on military doctrine and whatnot, but it seems exactly it's been quiet in some ways. Is it fair to say that's been stalled or it's on a pause? And I guess my other question there is if you, yeah, without you going into specific details, I do like what, what seemingly is going on across the lines um, saying there's a, percentage of attention toward behind the enemy lines disruption you know holding the lines and then resupply and reinforce Paul there's no need to rank me I've been out for a few years now Um, as far as the Russian offensive it's possible uh, we've seen one to two day operational pauses from the Russians before where they then re- recommit, reattack and try to go on the offensive again. When you start getting into three days or more where they really don't do much, that usually indicates that this is more than an operational pause and they and they're forcing themselves to stop, consolidate and reassess what they're doing. Um, if this lasts for another you know day or two, I'll, pr- I'll probably be more uh ready to say, okay, that they've been stopped and they're, t- and they're taking stock of the situation. <sighs> Has the offensive stopped? I mean, we, we can't know at this point. They, do they, they still have enough combat strength in the field technically to continue it um, and try to force a breakthrough. It'll depend on what the Russians think that they can get by trying to force it. If they think they can get one, they might. If they think that trying to shift the center of gravity to another point on the front and attack there, assuming the Ukrainians have heavily reinforced around Izium and maybe weak somewhere else. We may see that. Um, but the answer is they have enough combat strength in the field to keep attacking. It will depend on their own assessment as to whether or not they do it and where they decide to do it. If they keep going in the same place, they go somewhere else. Um, as, for the, as far as the behind line stuff, this is... I can't stress the amount of breathing room the Russians have given the Ukrainians by abandoning that northern front. Now, they probably had to, but this has given the Ukrainians room to breathe a little bit, and now they're starting to get a little bit more aggressive. And frankly, the Russians don't seem all that prepared for it, which is a bit shocking. But, you know, then again, they, they've been fairly deficient in every other aspect of military doctrine. Why not this, too? And yeah, it's gonna it's gonna hurt them in the long run if they can't stop this from happening to them. They've got to be able to secure their own supply lines as bad as they are. They desperately need them, and they can ill afford any kind of interruption. Especially if they want to hold what they've got, let alone keep advancing. Yeah, this is going to be a major problem for them. 
I, I share that sigh of relief uh, with the North and it being alleviated from that burden north of Kiev. Um, my final follow-up is, you know, Russia is following old Soviet tactics with artillery and everything else. Why aren't we seeing these large formations of Russian tanks just moving forward, overrunning? That's what we saw with uh, against Germany in World War II, like Battle of Kursk and on westward. Why aren't we seeing that? It's okay. I'm happy to, that we aren't seeing it. But just to say, I've kind of been expecting that old Soviet tactic being employed here. That's actually a really big question. Um, I will try to, I will try not to write a book on this one. If they were going to do that, we would have seen it for the jump. Instead, and this goes along with their reorganization after 2014 along the battalion tactical group model, they seem to have been trying for something approximating a slimmed down, more Western tactical orientation that valued speed, firepower, and the ability to advance and destroy rapidly, as opposed to the, you know, Soviet mammoth advance where every, you know, all tanks get online and we, you just push forward through a barrage of artillery. And not only has that gone very, very badly for them, but they waited long enough that the weather is no longer conducive to large-scale armored warfare. And we've seen this with, you know, tanks stuck in the mud, BMPs, BTRs. You know, er- apparently every pantsier they've ever built has apparently been stuck in the Ukrainian mud somewhere at one point, and somebody got a picture of all of them. It, the terrain, the weather, they have all, from the Russian standpoint, gone to hell. We're not, I doubt we'll see that even if they reverted to old doctrine, I doubt we'd see it simply because it's just not feasible. They'd get stuck in the mud and they get picked off by Ukrainian anti-tank crews, which terrifies them, you know, probably more than whatever the general officers giving the orders threaten to do to them. So that's, that's the basics of why, why we have it and why we probably won't, at least until this mess dries up some. And frankly, there somebody else made this point the other day. It might have been um, Austin or somebody else. They're starting to run. They, they've got to be starting to run out of infantry. And once that happens, they're in real deep trouble. Um, which is another reason I don't think they'll do the Odessa thing. They've got, I think, sixty-five percent of their BTGs committed, and the Pentagon's estimating that a quarter of all their battalion tactical groups are assessed now as combat ineffective after two months. So that's really not good. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's astoundingly not good for them. And they've got a finite amount of combat power because uh, 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 I believe General Hurtling made this point the other day. He, he was saying, look, you know, you can't just slot these reservists that they may or may not be calling up into these units and expect them to function at full capacity. You're going to need time to train them up. You're going to need time to get them acclimated. These units are shot up. They've got bad morale. That's going to infect the new guys coming in. They got a whole host of problems. And what that basically means is these type of large scale operations, they don't have, not only is the weather against them, they may actually not have the troops to do it. I mean, they, they really might not. And 
that could be uh, that could be playing into this. One, they may not have the troops. Two, if they technically do, they'd have to pull too many from other areas that might destabilize their front line. And if they took huge casualties in that kind of attack, they, they wouldn't be able to replace them, and it might cause a catastrophic collapse. Um, they are not in a good way. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. And I, I think this is still them st- stumbling around trying to figure out a, a, an operational pattern that works for them. I think they are still doing that. Um, and, and that's kind of my general assessment on that one. Great, thanks. I totally would agree they have not found their their combat rhythm at all. All right, let's go to Misfit, and then I might have a, a quick plug for some other stuff, actually. But let's go to Misfit first. Let's have a quick, uh, simple question. I, I'm really much enjoying the conversation, and I hate to interrupt what's going on. It's all been music to my ears. Um, but I wanted to just ask, what is the real significance of oil depots being blown up? Um, it's kind of a generic umbrella type term where like, oh, an, an oil, another oil depot, that's a good thing. Um, but it, that's not the same as a fuel depot, um, or do they have all those things um, being able to refine into fuel from, from that? In other words, could you just kind of break down what the, the what the true significance is of these oil depots being blown up other than being threatened in their own territory, you know, the psychological part of it, but what's the technical part of it? Uh, Patrick, if you want to take that one. Uh, I am frankly not conversant enough in, in Russian fuel logistics to give you a solid answer on that one. I would suspect it, whatever it is, fuel fuel depot or oil depot, it's going to constrict their ability to supply their units on some level. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're if you're looking for a specific, you know, how many gallons have they lost? You know, what is what does this mean for the operational bonus? I frankly don't know. So I'm, <laughs> uh, I'll just rather than give you a, a potentially wrong answer, I'll just cap to it. I I honestly don't know on that one. That's all good. I appreciate it nonetheless. Thank you. We do have some folks who are a little more specialized in logistics. If you happen to be one of those folks here, click that button in the lower left-hand corner. Come on up. Um, We'd love to have your perspective on it. I know very little about Russian fuel logistics. I know they have the capacity to lay down, um, you know, transport pipes. At least we saw that attempted to the northwest of Kiev. I have no idea how successful that was. Um, but also there's been a number of fuel trucks, which they've been using exhaustively, that have been destroyed, especially in recent days. Um, there's something I'd recommend, even if you don't speak uh, Ukrainian, uh, you can probably read it with the aid of most translators, and this is general stuff. The Russian Ministry of Defense, um, they have a Facebook page. They tend to update stuff pretty good. I would recommend you guys giving them a follow or just putting it as a bookmark on your tab. You don't even have to have Facebook. And then just run that through a translator, and it'll tell you, you know, usually they will specify. If they say, for instance, yesterday you said 17 vehicles were destroyed in the Donbass or whatnot, in addition to APCs and tanks, etc. They'll usually say, oh, two of them were this, one of them was that, if it's something unique. But, uh, yeah. 
So if we can get a few more people up here, the more the merrier. Uh, we are starting to get a little light and, uh, you know, the more, frankly, the more perspectives. But while we've got you all as a captive audience, I'm going to take a quick plug for something um, regarding signals intelligence. So there's a lot of ways you can help. Um, there's a number of wonderful organizations. Um, Aid is one that's hoisted in high regard by a number of people who come through here. Um, they're a good organization. I've seen their effects on the ground. You should do what you can to help. However, um, there are some things you can do with listening to Russian radio traffic uh, from the comfort of your own home. So, uh, and I, there's some people who do that all the time. So if your idea of fun is sitting listening to really terrible quality audio for hours on end to decipher absolutely nothing out of it except for code words, um, and that's just really what gets your jimmies rolling, then maybe shoot me a DM. Um, to be very clear here, if you or you if you or your family live in the territory of the Russian Federation, Belarus, or Transnistria, this is not something for you. Just there's other ways you can help, but this is not it. Um, however, if you are fluent in Russian and you have the time, willingness, and energy to do mindless, exhausting work that every once in a long while gets sent to somebody who can actually do something with it. Maybe shoot me a DM, and maybe I can put you in contact with some people who can use your help. Um, moving aside from the recruiting call, uh, signal intelligence has been utilized by uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian allied actors, as I'm sure you can suspect from that last one, to great significance. Russian communications have been uh, easily intercepted due to a number of issues, um, some of the things which they believe to be more secure are not, um, either because they're using older technology or there is new and inventive ways to intercept those signals. And in at least one case recently, which this has hit major media outlets, so it's not, you know, I'm not leaking anything here. Um, Simonov, the one-star general that was killed by uh, our uh, Ukrainian MLRS strike in the vicinity of Izium, as well as possibly, and there's big question marks around this, harass them off having been there and taking some minor shrapnel and being evacuated. That's not confirmed. There's a lot of rumors swirling around. Don't trust anything till you see him in public, right? I don't think, I think it's entirely possible he wasn't even in the area at the time when the strike occurred. But that general, Simonov, was uh, in charge of an electronic warfare group. And uh, that includes a number of funky technologies including um, a pretty powerful radio broadcast system and some powerful electronic warfare equipment, which if you turn it on enough times because you're a moron and you don't think anyone's listening, then it can be triangulated because it's a very powerful signal. And uh, the rumor is, a little bird told me, that uh, because he did that enough times, um, some people who were listening uh, were able to triangulate the location with directional antennas send that information to the Ukrainian armed forces or intelligence agencies thereof, who then dispatched a National Guard unit to investigate the area. They did find this guy basically sitting there with his pants down, at which point they called in a raw gun strike um, with MLRS and killed the whole group. So we have seen this in a number of cases where Russians' communication, even among themselves, is very poor. I could talk for hours on some of the stuff that they say to each other. It's laughable at best. There's a example of um, a Ukrainian in-country who, uh, having been able to pick up Russian uh, 
radio transmissions and figure out the call sign of a guy near him, basically called him up with a fake call sign of another person he had heard. And the guy, you know, was actually able to communicate with him for a little while before the Ukrainians started cursing at him and jamming him up. So at this point, we're 68 days into the war. It's been pretty astoundingly awful how bad uh, Russians' communication systems have been and their security thereof. There's a good uh, New York Times article. Um, if you search for Russian radio New York Times, you'll probably find it. it. has some of the more interesting excerpts. And it doesn't appear, even though they have moved more into... They, they have gotten better, like Patrick has said, the enemy learns. And they've moved more into code words and, sig- and frequency hopping and some other technologies that they've had access to but weren't fully recognizing, they're still remarkably ineffective. And the takeaway from this long ramble is that while the Russian military has the capability to change, at some point they are burdened by the systems they have, the training they've been exposed to, and what I would, this is a bit of a reach, argue is just a general uh, inability to change. Um, they do not change nearly as rapidly when subject to mitigating factors, and it takes them a long time to do real basic, simple shit that sh- could have been done and you know and communicated properly to others within 24 to 48 hours. So it was, it was a long talk on a bit of a nerdy topic, and I apologize. But um, let's see if we can get some questions from the audience. Let's see if we can get some more people up here. If there's anybody who wants to riff on that for a little bit, I'd love to hear it. Um, if anybody wants to tell me how I'm wrong and why I'm wrong, I really like to hear that too. That's how I learn new things. But in the meantime, let's uh, go to our DMs. I mean, Axel, Misfit, Patrick, I don't know if you guys have uh, any questions or topics that you'd like to address. Not yet, my friend. Not yet, my friend. I'm still dealing with a sick dog. I will be available shortly. All right, uh, Patrick, is there anything that we may have missed while I was rambling on? Uh, Nothing I've come across. It's been fairly quiet today, it looks like, thankfully. Minus the missile barrage this morning, or yesterday morning now, I guess. Yeah, that was... uh, The the Russians are only allowed to do one of those a day, I've come to the conclusion. Apparently, they (laughs) that's a joke. But um, it seems that if they do those, it tends to be just one um, all at the same time, I imagine, for coordination purposes. We do have an update um, from the general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine as of, uh, honestly, about six hours ago now. So this is coming in a little late. Um, So this is a summary of the last day, if you weren't around for it. In order to destroy Ukraine's transportation infrastructure, uh, Russia fired missiles at facilities in Dnipro, Kivrogod, Lviv, Vinitsia, Kiev. Uh, Zakarpathia, Odessa, and the Donetsk regions. Uh, Zakarpathia, up in the Transcarpathian Mountains, near the border with Hungary. What was hit there specifically was, it was either a power generation plant or a power transmission plant. But um, between that and the number of rail lines being hit, I wish we had Craig in here. Uh, he can verbalize the importance of rail lines far better than I. It's not just because Russia wants to be an asshole and stop civilians from fleeing west. It's also to inhibit the movement of material from Poland into Ukraine by damaging these rail lines. Because if you have 200 tanks, say, from Poland, you're not going to be able to drive them all the way over. Um, And so by inhibiting these logistics, I suspect the intention is to 
further degrade as much as Russia can the ability for uh, Ukraine to continuously receive uh, heavier and heavier equipment, which we have started to see, thankfully, um, and hopefully we will see more of. In Kharkiv, there's been continued artillery and mortar strikes, um, especially in the village of Protopivka. Protopopivka. Um, there was a lot of drone reconnaissance um, to the northeast, and uh, there was attempted to conduct offensive operations towards Dovenke, which is, uh, that's actually southeast of Izium along the main road, just west of the main road to Sloviansk. They've tried that a couple of times. They've been unsuccessful. There's some interesting terrain around there, even though it's mostly fields. Um, at some point, it does turn into hills. And along the main road to Sloviansk, um, and let me brag about myself for five seconds here. I mean, I'm not a bright guy, but I can at least figure out where you might want to defend a position. And when you have hills and forests along a major highway going into which kind of runs through this little hills on the side, making into a valley, Ukrainians have a setup shop in the vicinity of that area. And Russians have just proven entirely unable to break through there with armored units. Um, they even tried it at night when we saw that large uh, missile barrage across the entire front the better part of 10 days ago. And they were remarkably unsuccessful. So Ukraine holds a very strong position in that area along the most direct path to Sloviansk and Kramatorsk. Um, in Lyman, um, Liman, I'm, I continuously don't know which way to pronounce that. The, and the Russians are advancing um, more to the southwest, and the uh, Russian troops have reinforced, and they've intensified air reconnaissance. In Papazna, fighting continues. That's pitched urban warfare. A lot of uh, DPR, LPR troops being guided by either Russian conventional forces or in a number of cases there, the Wagner Group. Wagner Group is a mercenary group that is essentially part and parcel with the Russian military. They're not, you know, door kickers as much as they go into foreign countries, especially in the Middle East and Africa. They recruit local nationals and then they lead them around. Um, they have a lot of experience dealing with poorly equipped, poorly trained and demoralized forces. That's why I imagine they've been placed with these uh, DPR troops. For a handy identification guide, if you're wondering who you're looking at and you don't speak the language, uh, white, Russian conventional army, orange, red is going to be DPR, LPR troops. Um, and if you see them wearing gear that doesn't look like it was made before 1980, then uh, these those are probably the Wagner guys. Um, they stick out like a sore thumb because they actually have a weapon that's not, you know, an, an, an old, old AKM. And, uh, you know, they usually have more than like one or two mags and they're not the ones running out into the street and getting chewed up by machine gun fire. And if you're seeing in older videos, blue in newer videos, green uh, armbands, that tends to be conventional Ukrainian forces. Uh, in Zaporizhia, the Russians continue out assault operations towards Orykiv, which they have been shelling for a number of days now um, without success. In Horlivka, more than 100 uh, Russian soldiers' corpses who died in Zaporizhia uh, were taken to the central morgue. Horlivka is, an, is a town, a large urban area in the Donetsk region that has been under Russian control since 2014. Uh, we can talk a little bit more on sort of the movement of bodies because Russia's been doing some funky stuff lately. In uh, the Harrison direction, Russia has used artillery and rocket artillery specifically and tanks along the entire line of contact, and they've intensified hostilities in the in the northeastern region of um, Kherson Oblast. 
and uh, and then way up north by um, Belarus, the situation remains controlled. Belarusian forces continue to wander around their border. But, and while Ukraine, by necessity, must place some forces there in case the Belarusians do something stupid, the likelihood of an attack coming from that direction is as close to nil as anything I've seen in this war. Um, in north of Kiev, no signs of formation of an offensive group by Russians have been seen as part of strengthening the protection of the Russian-Ukraine border. Um, units of the Russian Federation from the central military districts so of the area around Moscow have been deployed uh, in the Bryansk region. Uh, and then in the south, in the city of Tokmak and Zaporizhia, this is intriguing. The uh, Russian forces have begun, uh, they describe it as mass construction of disguises of the uniform of the armed forces of Ukraine. And then the Ukrainians say that provocative actions by such, quote unquote, deployed units of the Ukraine military in the occupied territories are not ruled out. So if you see reports of a whole squad of Russian-speaking Ukrainians going marauding in a Russian-occupied area, maybe take a step back and uh, see if that's in Zaporizhia. Other than that, um, yeah, we have some questions. Um, you can try and run through those real quick. Uh, this is actually a question I do not know the answer to besides a percentage from Ben followed by a bunch of Mandarin characters. Hi, I don't seem to be able to connect. Um, back of the envelope calculation requiring the cost of war of the, for Russia, what is the bare-bone number an army requires to stay operational? Like, how expensive is it to refuel all the troops without asking, in, without taking into account the building of new material to replace expended material? Um, when you say bare-bone number, maybe if you can clarify that, so I don't know if you mean, like, population, how many soldiers they need, how much equipment they need. Um, bit, of a, bit of a confusing question there. Uh, Patrick, do you want to take that one? Uh, that's a big war economy question. That uh, I, I don't have numbers to plug into a lot of that. I, I just don't have it. Uh, I'd, I'd have to know every little bit of what they've lost. If I heard that right, it's what would it cost to rebuild and, and replenish these units? Is that right? That's how it seems like it was phrased. I, I'll admit I'm a little confused. If you don't mind just rewording the question there, Ben, I think I might be misunderstanding it. I mean, if that's what it is, it, you know, I mean, you can just look at at, at, a, at a TOE, a table of organization, organization equipment, and, and, you know, look at it for, you know, a Russian tank platoon or or, or a mechanized company or, or anything you like and just start plugging in numbers. Uh, Russian tank platoon is four tanks. There are three, there are three platoons per company plus one. So you get 13 tanks per company. Those reach, you know, figure out what a T80 costs. It's, you know, you can probably do that in about five minutes on the internet. I don't have it in front of me. It's a few million dollars, you know, tens of millions of dollars probably. So that'll tell you what it costs to replace a Russian tank company just from the equipment alone. That doesn't even count the personnel, the training time, uh, all their gear, you know, if the answer is what does it cost to rebuild these units is millions and millions of dollars. And that's just in the hardware. Um, yeah, I mean, there are people who actually do this, who, who, who can go through and say, okay, this is, you know, this is a war, this is, this is a war economy chart. Okay. If I destroy a Russian tank company, what does that cost in equipment? And they can give you an answer. 
um, you know, mechanized company, same thing. What does it cost? Give me an answer. Uh, there are guys who do this and can go through and say, okay, what does the training of everybody who was killed in that company cost? And they give, give you an answer. But the ballpark is, you know, if you destroy a battalion, that's, you know, probably hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion, probably not a billion. U.S. battalion may be maybe that high, but not a Russian. Probably hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's just in the equipment. That doesn't, you know, equipment, time, training. You know, that doesn't even count the time it would take to replace that equipment, which, as we've seen, Russian industry industries start failing. That's not a sure thing either. So it's it, when the when you start taking heavy losses in combat units in a modern in anything close to a modern army. The Russians aren't, aren't a modern army, but, you know, they, they're a vague approximation of one. It's very, very, very expensive. And if you don't have large stocks of equipment on hand, it takes a long time to replace in some cases. All right. Hopefully that answers your question, Ben. Um, we do have an update on casualties taken by projected by Ukraine. Take that were taken by the Russian Federation. It's been a long day. I apologize. The amount of Russians that are dead. Um, currently, plus three hundred uh, personnel, bringing the total up to a nice twenty-four thousand five hundred Russian casualties, more or less. No new aircraft or helicopters were destroyed. Fifteen tanks. Uh, were reported destroyed, bringing the total up to 1,077. 43 APCs of various kinds were destroyed, bringing the total of those up to 2,600. Uh, another anti-aircraft system was destroyed, bringing that up to 81. Uh, another uh, long-range rocket artillery was destroyed, bringing that up to 163. Another 24 vehicles and fuel tankers. It's unclear exactly what you know composition that is were destroyed, bringing the total up to 1,867. Um Another 16 Russian uh, towed artillery systems were destroyed, uh, bringing the total up to just under 500. Another 12 drones were destroyed, bringing the total up to 303. And another three cruise missiles were shot down, bringing the total up to 87. So let's focus on the drones for a second there, because we have seen tremendous drone losses by Russian forces in the past couple of days. We had a couple, and these numbers are not always just for 24 hours. Sometimes things take a little bit to get in. So, you know, statistics can be a funky thing. They can get padded on one day and depreciated on another. Um, but we've seen a couple of, like, for the past several days, we have seen easy double digits of Russian drones being shot down. Um, and that's not just along the eastern front, though. That's predominantly where they are, but also along the southern front and uh, in at least a couple cases near Odessa. Uh, 300 drones to be shot down. Most of these are what's called the Orlan 10 drone. It's a reconnaissance drone. It does not carry weapons. There's some entertaining videos of people taking it apart to find out that most of the electronics are essentially commercial stuff, including at least in one video what appears to be a Nikon camera that's been permanently affixed to the inside. Um, they're, they're, they, Russians like to use these for spotting. Um, especially for artillery. Russian doctrine with drones is a little different than Americans, where our drones will kill you dead while they're looking at you. Uh, Russia has tremendous artillery, as we've seen and talked about, and so they use a drone to spot for their artillery companies and then use the artillery to kill you dead. Um, so most of these do fly a little lower than what you would see with, say, a Predator or a Reaper drone. Um, there have been some of the more advanced drones. There's one that's... <sighs> 
it's called a Flogstaff or something, Flotstat. I'm blanking on the name. Someone I'm sure will, will correct me. That was shot down near Odessa. Those fly quite a bit higher. But losing 10 to 20 drones a day for the last, you know, several days or so is considerable. And I'd appreciate people's takes on whether that's because the Ukrainians are gaining access to more um, more capable anti-air systems, whether they've been able to find ways to track these drones by electronic warfare, which is a known quantity and there's equipment out there that exists that the Ukrainians are using to do that, or it's simply because the Russians are using their drones in a more offensive capacity to try and scout out Ukraine positions, and as such, they're exposing them to fire. Um, I'd appreciate anybody's takes on that. Bueller? Okay, well, I guess that will simply have to be a mystery for the ages then. Um, let's see if we have some more questions. Um, ah, the oil. Okay, so the oil depot that's burning. Yep, that's a pretty decent. Uh, I mean, it's oil. It's going to burn pretty good. But um, the oil in uh, Andivka to the northeast of Donetsk, it's making a nice little cloud, and it's it's still going. Um, and if they don't have the foam and whatnot there that they need to deal with that, then they're going to have a hell of a time putting it out. It's probably just going to just burn itself out at some point. Um, beyond that, let's see if there's any more updates. I think I may be running a little out of steam here. And uh, this is not the language learner show, far from it. Um, so please, at any time, if you have something to share or to add, come on up and we'll try and we'll get you up here. Um, nobody's here to listen to me talk ad nauseum. Um, so please like just, I'm not going to be insulted if you come up here and just start talking as long as you're not a jerk. Um, we can talk a little about some of, uh, Putin's disposable soldiers that they forcibly conscripted from the DPR LPR region. Um, you know, there's actually a pretty decent article on that. Um, there's 17, uh, motorized rifle regiments of about 26,000 people total from the, uh, mobilized um you know dpr region these guys are being given essentially no training they're being given the latest in um you know 1940s weaponry like i'm looking at a picture of a guy grinning cheerily while he's holding a you know a 1941 russian submachine gun um there's others that are using bolt action rifles uh and these guys are just dying um it's Interesting that in, from the person who wrote this article, this is on novinarnia.com, which is a good Ukrainian news source. I would encourage you guys to take a look at it. They tend to be pretty quick with their updates, and I steal shamelessly from them. Um, that they're utilizing a number of steel helmets, which, you know, they'll stop shrapnel, but if you shoot at it, it's just going to make a nice noise as it goes through your head. Um, and Mosin rifles, which are the latest in um, 19th century technology. It's a bolt action rifle. You used to be able to get at Walmart for like, you know, 50 bucks back in the day. I had one. Everybody did. Um, they don't have any body armor whatsoever. Uh, they don't really have any AKs. Um, they may have like one or two per squad is what I'm seeing here. But um, that's about it. And I'm really not one to dive into the specifics of small unit weaponry. I think that we tend to 
overestimate the difference here, especially in America, because if I shoot you with a gun, it doesn't really matter how high speed it is. Um, the bullet's still going to hurt. But there is enough differences that if I give you a bolt-action rifle and two days of training and I say, hey, there's a guy in that uh, concrete apartment block who wants nothing more than to, you know, kill every Russian soldier he sees, go get him, Tiger, you might as well save yourself the trouble and just shoot yourself in the face because it's not going to go well, right? And these guys are just disposable. Their bodies, when they are killed, um, if their bodies are recovered by Russians or their um, by their allies, then, and that's rare, usually they just end up getting dumped um, into a pit somewhere or they just get left in the street for the dogs. It's, uh, I... My uh, response towards Russian soldiers in Ukraine could be best described as bloodthirsty, and I won't bore you with that. But even I have to take a little bit of pause for these folks who have been forcibly conscripted from the end of a barrel, um, basically thrown together with ad hoc equipment and said, hey, the last seven assaults against this defended Russian position, Ukraine position didn't work. Maybe number eight will be the one that finally gets it. I mean, these are guys who so there's videos of them bopping around in the back of a Ural truck somewhere saying, hey, the last two guys didn't come back. We're not going to come back. We're cannon fodder. This sucks. And people respond with, well, I would do something totally different if I was in that situation. I would turn around and I would kill the Russian commander. And I don't care about it. A, you never know the situation you're in until you get there. Uh, the capacity, the desire to live is pretty strong, um, which is something I hope that none of us ever have to put into practice. But before the war even started, a number of these folks' families, uh, the women and children, were forcibly deported from the Donbass area into Russia and from there on sort of filtered out into more rural villages in Siberia. Passports have been taken. It's the same principle that's been applied to, I think, now about a million uh, Ukrainian citizens have been forcibly deported into ter territories controlled by Russia um, and victimized in a number of ways. So if I come to your house and I take your wife and I take your kids and I shove them into the ass end of Siberia, and I give you a gun, and I say, Con congratulations, you're part of you know, the local fighting force, you've been mobilized. You may decide that, you know what, I'm willing to shoot this guy who's uprooted my life. And you might get away with it. And in your moments before you get killed by every other Russian soldier standing around you, because even if you somehow manage to pull a John Wick and kill them all, you're still in enemy territory by a very large margin. There's been a number of reports of sort of implicit threats units saying, hey, we don't want to go fight to the front. They go, oh, that's really cool. Hey, your wife lives in this apartment. Do you want us to show you a video of her as she dies? And they're like, uh, no, no, no. Oh, I hear your daughter's 12. That'd be nice. You want to see a video of that? No, 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 sir. I'll do whatever you tell me. Just leave my family alone. So it's a horrific situation um, on both sides of the front here. Getting a couple of questions. Why don't these people surrender to Ukrainian troops? You're not really going to get that chance. Um, you know, if, you, if you're running at a Ukrainian position with a rifle, it's not like there's a hand signal you can come up with to demonstrate that you're friendly. Um, and the Ukrainian on the other end of that gun is not going to take the chance that, oh, this guy in an enemy combat uniform who's part of the group shooting at me, maybe he's a buddy. It, it's just not going to happen. So be aware. What's uh, one of the things, the first casualty of war is innocence, um, right after truth, something like that. So... It's a terrible situation, but uh, these people are essentially being used as just disposable soldiers. And um, the bodies stack higher every day. Um, there's been a number of people, including band teachers and just general folks, forcibly conscripted into it, um, killed. There are numbers that are being captured. Um, 
generally their lines are that they never fired a gun and that they're all cooks and uh, radio personnel, which is kind of a cheeky way to respond to it. Um, but they're just saying, you know, hey, we're all in hell. This is terrible. What are we doing here? Many of us died. We were in Sumi. We all got killed. Um, there's a video where our comrades were taken prisoner. We've all been killed. The Ministry of Defense of Russia has no idea what we're doing here. They brought us to the Russian Federation. They gave us weapons. They took away our passports. They take. They took us to the front lines. And then, you know, we're just being sent to die against artillery. And there's reports that they say, oh, well, you know, even if you die or if you join the army, then we'll pay you. And when you die, they just throw your body in a hole. And if your family asks about it, they just say, oh, sorry, you know, we'll get back to you at a later time. And then they just ignore it. So when we start to talk about conscription and forced mobilization and a lot of rumors surrounding that from the Russian Federation, I would urge you to look at this picture that I've just painted. I do not see... And I really would like your perspective on this, Patrick, that if Russia were to somehow summon a half million man army from, you know, the reaches of all these tiny villages and a bunch of people reservists who don't really want to be called up, that they're going to fare any better, especially if Russia tries to accelerate the training time to an order of weeks or just a few months. Um, so very long, very uh, depressing story, but that's what you get when uh, you start to dive into the realities of this war. But uh, Patrick, if you want to riff a little bit on what would mo- fa- mo- uh, mask uh, mobilization slash mass conscription and rapid deployment of those units from Russia look like, do you assess that their combat capabilities would be greater than or equal to or lesser than what we've seen with the conventional Russian forces in the field? Okay, um, we may have uh, Patrick may be taking care of some other stuff right now. Uh, Gail Gibbs, you've requested the mic. Here you are. The floor is yours. Hi, language learner. Um, I felt a little bad for you because there's there's so many listeners, but nobody is raising their hand and talking. Um, it's a very end of the night for me here in New York City, and uh, I listen to this space while I paint, uh, kind of like the radio, but you know more depressing. (laughs) I don't know, maybe it isn't more depressing. Anyway, um, I, you know, as I listen to you talk about these uh, situations, you know, that uh, conscripts could come, you know, come into, um, you know, it, it makes me think of the way that they might think of it as they're, as they're going into the situation they're in like they're they're thinking about their family everyone is connected to somebody else and they're all connected to you know even even if they don't have children they're connected to their nieces and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents and their entire family and all of their friends and um my my boyfriend was born in moscow and raised in Moscow, and then his his whole family is Jewish, and he's half Ukrainian, half Russian, and they were able to escape. And I say escape because it really was an escape from Russia. They were given uh, one day to pick whatever they could fit in a suitcase and leave. They had a beautiful apartment. They had they had a lot of things. They had beautiful books. They had music. They couldn't take anything with them. They had to leave in one day and go to Israel and I mean to um, 
to Italy and decide if they would go to Israel or to the United States. They chose the United States, they had nothing. They lived in a basement apartment here in Boston and um, my boyfriend worked at McDonald's and paid for them, the whole family to live, like their rent, everything. They worked from you know the bottom up here in the, in the United States. And I've heard so many stories for the last you know, 14 years from him about the, uh, about Russia and about their family, you know, being Jewish, they were really, really um, discriminated against in Russia. And that's one reason, I mean, like the main reason, I guess, that they really wanted to leave um, in the, throughout their whole history in Russia, they were discriminated against. Um, his grandmother was, for, for bogus reasons, completely bogus reasons, was taken at some point, Just they just decided that she had spoken against the regime somehow. Um, this was maybe in the 1950s. She was taken to a gulag in Siberia, and she got terrible, terrible um, uh, frostbite on her hands and her feet. For the rest of her life, she was incapacitated. But she also escaped to the United States. And from the point at which she came to the West, she was so grateful to just be able to live and to have her family live and to have her family be free, that even though she couldn't use her hands and her feet, I mean, it just, it makes me cry just thinking about it, you know? Uh, she was still, she was so happy always because she was able to be free and her family was able to be free. And um, I think about this when you talk about what you're talking about, because here in the West, I feel like we, we, you know, unless you know someone who went through that, you don't really understand how horrifically bad it is. I mean, I feel so much pain for the people that are in the uh, the Russian um, captive areas right now, because I know how horrific it is for them. They are just being completely tortured. And uh, I, I, I can't say enough support for Ukraine right now and for everything they're going through. And I, I feel, as so many people do, so horrible that we can't just go there and do something. And I know all the reasons why we can't, but I feel like it's it's a it's a terrible pain, you know. And that's why I listen to this this space all night, every night while I paint, because I feel like I need to stay uncomfortable about this, and I need to listen to these stories every night, all night, as I paint, <laughs> because we all need to. We need to focus on this. We need to send them all of our good energy and any money that we possibly have. So <laughs> Maria Aid is the uh, the place where we're donating. And they, they are a wonderful organization that was created by a lot of people in the space. They are providing um, non-lethal aid to Ukraine. And they are providing amazing things like tourniquets uh, that save people's lives and everyone who can donate anything, even if it's like $5, the price of a coffee or something here in the United States. And I know that most of the United States is asleep right now, but anyone who is listening, please uh, consider donating or at least tell people about it. Uh, try to, to get people to 
focus on this issue, there's a lot of other issues that are popping up constantly, but we need to focus on this because it is a matter of life and death, literally. Like, I know with 100% certainty that if Russia was able to plow through Ukraine, they would continue to plow through the rest of Europe because they're insane, literally. I know this from all the stories that I've heard. And I know that we are at huge risk and we need to, we, we need to help them. We need to help them with all of our efforts. So that, that's all. Thank you so much, Language. Thank you. And so I hope Maria anything first and please don't leave because I do have something else I want to talk to you about, about, you know, how much we expose ourselves to these things. Maria Aid, it's a nonprofit organization that's it's uh, linked up in the nest. It's at the top of your screen. Um, I'm not employed by them. I've seen their work done on the ground. I, you can believe me or not, um, but I know where the aid goes and I know it goes well. Nobody's getting paid who works there. I can verify that as well. Um, and it's not just sponsored by a bunch of nerds on Twitter. It's actually um, some people in the higher echelons of the Canadian military who have direct exposure with Operation Unifier, which helped train the Ukrainian forces up to the level that we see them now, including Lieutenant Colonel Melanie Lake, her attache staff, as well as another number of people um, have been sending it because they are in communication with units on the ground and they're sending them non-lethal aid uh, in compliance with all international law and ITAR regulations. Uh, to save lives. And there's other opportunities. You do, do what you can, man. Like, if it's 20 bucks and that's the amount of money it takes to get a tourniquet out of the bag when the medic reaches for it and that tourniquet saves somebody's limb or their life, mother or father or son or daughter, then, hey, you know, that's enough for me. And if you go, look, money's a little tight right now. I can't do it. That's cool too, man. There's other ways to help. And I am usually very, very much against what I would call slacktivism, hanging out here on Twitter and posting about things on social media. But it's a real concern, especially with Western apathy and the fact that we have uh, so many other things going on in uh, our lives and in the political spaces in um, Western countries that this can just become some background noise. And when it becomes background noise and the citizens stop caring about it, the political will disappears and politicians take the path of least resistance, which is to ignore it. That's a real threat. And, you know, maybe when you come out between the third and fourth quarter of whatever you're watching, you're taking a smoke, you're having a beer, you go, hey, buddy, you see that shit that happened in Ukraine? That's pretty messed up, isn't it? Maybe they go, oh, I don't really follow it. You go, well, you know, I, I do. And I've heard about this, that, the other thing. Do what you can with what you have. Keep the flame alive. That in and of itself is a victory in this case. However, I'm going to temper that a little bit by saying for the vast majority of us here who do not live in Ukraine, who do not have immediately family members or loved ones in Ukraine, we all have a unique opportunity, which is to walk away from this. And I'm not suggesting you turn, you know, the TV off and never listen to this again. But this is traumatic stuff. And especially if you're hanging out in this space and others and you're just injecting this into your veins nonstop, 24-7, at some point it becomes too much. I've hit that point multiple times myself and that's – you'll see me walk away and do other things and disappear. You have the capability to put this down and come back. And for you, the war will wait and there is no shame in that whatsoever because there is a line where you go from being complacent and not knowing anything – 
to where I now imagine many of us are, which is justifiable rage and disgust. And that can be utilized. And that's a harnessed emotion that's very powerful. And you can do great things with it. But you push that a little further and the line gets real cloudy and then you fall into despair. And when you are in despair and you say, this is horrific, there's nothing I can do, and you're staring up at your ceiling at three in the morning feeling shell-shocked, you are, you are incompetent in the ability to affect change. You are doing no good to yourself. You are doing no good to those around you. You are doing no good to the situation that you are trying to change. And I urge everybody to take a step back before you hit that point. Because beating yourself up mentally is not going to kill Russians in the East. Wandering through your day in a haze is not going to allow you to make more money, which you can use to support charities of whatever cause you feel is just. So if you need to take a day, go take a day. Go outside, breathe some air, realize that the world will continue turning, and that's for you, the war will wait. So just a very light pushback on that. I don't want to hear people, you know, because there's a lot of emotion in this driving themselves into the pits of despair because from a very cold and clinical view, it means then you're of no use to anybody. And from a humanitarian view, you really shouldn't do that to yourself if you can avoid it. So thank you on that. Uh, I see we have a couple hands. Let's go back to you, Gail. And then I saw we had a cannabis sativa came up and then Stuart and then peace for Ukraine. So let's start with you, Gail. No, I just wanted to reassure you that I'm not in the depths of despair. And actually, I hear your voice sometimes because I've heard you say that before, and I really appreciate it. Um, you know, my boyfriend and I temper each other because he listens to the, uh, you know, the um, Aristovich recordings every day, and he listens to other things that are in Russian that I don't understand. Um, and we talk to each other, and we basically we take like every other day we just like shut everything off and watch a, a fun movie or something or we dance tango um and my paintings actually funny enough um they they in reaction to the pain it's actually like before this whole war my paintings were very dark uh just because like i tend to be kind of dark <laughs> but um but in response to, in response to this war and like everything in the world i feel like everything is becoming very bright and light in my paintings which is kind of weird it's a, a strange juxtaposition but i just wanted you to know that i'm not like <laughs> suicidal or anything i am desperately sad about the situation but i also totally understand that we we you know i've always felt like we have to live for the people who can't live and that's why i always uh look at the the photos of the people who have been dying um, the the fighters, you know how they post the, the the photos of people who have died, the soldiers and the medics and everybody, and I try to keep them in my mind and I try to think like I am I'm painting today. I'm going out for coffee. I'm walking down the street. I'm enjoying the smell of spring because these people can't or for them, you know. So just just so you know. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for everything you you do for the space. And I really love your updates and I love uh, everybody on the space. And thank you. Well, flattery will get you everywhere, but thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Um, and it is more of a general question because we get a lot of statements and DMs and from other people that can be pretty, uh, pretty hard to read. And uh, I admittedly try and shy away from some of the worst excesses of uh, Russian war crimes. There's better people you can listen to who can talk about them. I'm not that guy to talk about them. Um, but, you know, at some point it hits you hard. 
Uh, let's go to uh, Cannabis Sativa. You requested the mic. The floor is yours. Cannabis Sativa, going once, going twice. You're still there, brother. All right, well, we'll psych you down. Uh, hopefully, you know, if you have more questions, you can come back up at any time. Uh, peace for Ukraine. Let's go to you. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much for this space. And uh, good morning from Europe. Uh, I hope all and across everyone who's listening to us is uh, and to you guys who are just great. And thank you for your service because this is really a wonderful service. And um, what you said, language uh, and Gail, is very important indeed that we continue to 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 shine a light and 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 continue to fight the good fights and uh, and also keep that balance um and what you said just now and what you described uh, between the darkness of despairs it's something that i actually did the mistake of doing in the first weeks into this conflict and find a very effective way to keep a good balance is that indeed step away, do good things, positive things, because keep, keep, take care of your mental health, take care of your body health so that you can keep good energy and you can help yourself, help your family, help your community, help Ukraine, uh, give to, to Marie um, it's so important that that we do that. And Gail, I hear is really, really, really important the way you and so cool the way you're managing things. And I can see in your uh, in your profile um, that you've pinned a post about war crimes, which if I'm if I can, I will just take that and put it link it with tweet that just came out a few minutes ago from President von der Leyen where she's there we're announcing a um, new package of san- sanctions but also one of the points in her tweet is that um, we're going to basically starting to name names and recognizing uh, war crimes and uh, it's now effectively proposing, Europe is now proposing a ban on Russian oil in a rational way. Not as strong as I maybe would like as sort of civilian, but I do understand the economics behind it, not entirely or extensively, but indeed it's, um, it's important. Um, language, I don't know if you want to share this or maybe Axel will share and I'm sure this will be discussed later, but I share this uh, into your DMs directly, but um, she starts actually to to put the, to make the point with the speech in the European Parliament but her first tweet and I'm just going to read it where she says Soon we will celebrate Europe Day, which will be next Monday, 9th of May, a day to reflect on our union, but also on the future of the EU, which today is also written in Ukraine. And I really appreciate 
the support and some of the speeches uh, from President van der Leyen, there, there's one that particularly resonate where she was she was she took a, a strong stance and that's that's the way we should do it a strong stance keep our ground hold lines because we have people like you language and Patrick and, and everyone that is holding the military lines and, and the army lines and the navy lines but we as um as artists like Gail, as an accountant like me, uh, 